Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I investigate paranormal phenomena, high strangeness, cryptozoology, ancient mythology, and the delightfully odd. I am your host and resident nerd, Aaron. Before we get into the meat and potatoes, I want to remind you that source links for my research will be in the show notes, so check that out if you want more information. With that said, let's get weird. This week, we are talking about the infamous chupacabra, which literally translates as goat sucker. The chupacabra is a Latin American myth predominantly found in Puerto Rico, northern Mexico, and the American Southwest. But as the mythos has spread, reports have been made in Maine, Chile, India, Russia, the Philippines, and other unexpected places. Most of these reports are vague and, frankly, without evidence, so they have been dismissed as one thing or another. Compared to Bigfoot, the chupacabra is a relatively new phenomenon. There are some old accounts of something similar to the chupacabra, but skeptical investigator Benjamin Bradford warns against lumping these together as there are some differences in the accounts. The chupacabra as most know it was first described in 1995, and the boom in sightings started in Puerto Rico and expanded from there. 1995 will be an important year, so remember that as I come back to it later. The reported physical characteristics of the chupacabra are actually extremely varied. Reptilian kangaroo, alien with spikes down its back, giant rat, dog-like creature with an extremely long tail and pit bull face. Some accounts even describe a winged creature. With such varied and fanciful reports, it's pretty difficult to make heads or tails of what it could be. Since the turn of the 21st century, though, most of the accounts settle on a hairless dog-like creature. And this is the phenotype of all of the bodies of supposed chupacabras that have been presented to scientists and media. When it comes to what scientists think of the chupacabra, They generally agree that the sightings are of canids, whether that be coyotes, dogs, or hybrids, that have lost their hair as a result of mange. In coyotes, this would be sarcoptic mange. In dogs, it would be demodectic mange. Both are mite infestations of the skin, which ultimately cause hair loss, as well as sores, scabs, thickened skin, as well as lethargy, and then eventually death. These animals definitely have an odd and alien-like appearance. They're generally not going to be capable of killing and maiming livestock, though. It's important to note that the witnesses are only seeing the animal attacks the next morning and not in progress, so we don't actually have any connecting link between the supposed sightings of the chupacabra and the attacks of the chupacabra. So I'll be pretty much referring to them as separate entities in this episode. All of the supposed images that I have seen of a chupacabra are quite clearly of a coyote with mange, but would it be possible to get a more hairless appearance without a crippling illness? Well, there is a dog known as the Sholo Eats Queenly, also known as the Sholo or Mexican hairless dog. That is roughly the size of the coyote, but has dark hairless skin as a result of canine ectodermic dysplasia. It's an autosomal dominant genetic condition, so it would be present in a Sholo coyote hybrid as well. So it's possible that some of the sightings are related to the Sholo, 
but I do think most are just coyotes with mange. Chupacabra attacks are more consistently described than their appearance. There's sudden death, usually of more than one animal at a time, sometimes even more than one species at a time. You'll find one, two, or three puncture wounds, and the animal will appear to be drained of blood. This is often misidentified, though. Many veterinary necropsies have found that the cardiovascular systems of the victims remain intact after death. The attacks are not always limited to the blood, though. Some of the initial reports coming from Puerto Rico in 1995 said that the chupacabra sucked out the animal's blood, then disemboweled the animal and ate the guts. Typically, the victims are medium-sized farm animals, pigs and goats, for example, But horses, cows, pigs, goats, dogs, cats, chickens, rabbits, geese, and even parakeets are said to have been attacked by the chupacabra. Obviously, that's ridiculous. Horses and parakeets are not on any predator's menu side by side. I think that's mostly the product of hysteria, as the vast majority of reports involve those medium-sized animals I mentioned previously but it is important to recognize that some accounts have different species of animals getting attacked on the same farm on the same night, which is not what I would expect from a typical predator. In the summer of 1995, a movie called Species was released. It included an alien-human hybrid that scientists instantly regretted creating, so they hunted it down, hoping to kill it before it could breed with a human and create a much bigger issue. It's a cheesy 90s sci-fi flick, but Benjamin Bradford credits it for contributing to, if not outright causing, the chupacabra legend, because many of the early chupacabra reports in the mid-1990s pull characteristics directly from the Sill character in Species. With this influence and the obvious inconsistencies in reports of physical characteristics, I don't want to focus too much on what animal might be misidentified as a chupacabra, though we hit on it some already with the mange-afflicted coyotes. Mostly, I want to see what pre-1995 reports I can find of chupacabra-like attacks. I know that Benjamin Bradford thinks it's a separate phenomenon, but if everything post-1995 is tainted by the movie, I need to see what existed in the culture before 1995. I don't want to be chasing Slender Man or the Headless Horseman. I want to know the legend before the Hollywood contamination. That brings me to Fort Worth, Texas in 1906. Allow me to read straight from this account. Several weeks ago, R. H. Beck, a farmer of the section referred to, discovered that three of his hogs were dead in the pens. He thought that cholera had broken out among his swine and began to take precautions against the spread of the disease. Several days later, he discovered two other dead hogs. He was still inclined to favor the cholera theory and redoubled his efforts to stamp out the plague. The following morning, Elsie Trimble, another farmer of that vicinity, found five hogs dead among his drove. Near one of the hogs was a tiny pool of blood. Investigation revealed a small puncture just over the jugular vein on each of the animals. He communicated the startling intelligence to his neighbors, and Mr. Beck examined the bodies of the hogs that had died in his pens, he discovered the same minute puncture just over the jugular vein. By this time, the hog owners were thoroughly enraged and mystified. 
they presumed, of course, that some individual, insanely bent, was guilty of the depredations. The punctures seemed to have been made with a very fine pointed knife blade. In February through July of 1975, we have the incidents of the Vampire of Mocha in Puerto Rico. In total, hundreds of farm animals, including cows, goats, pigs, geese, and chickens, were found with puncture marks on their bodies and, according to the necropsies, without any blood. One thing that stands out from 1906 is that the puncture wounds are not all in the jugular vein, but I'm not sure if they were still in the region of other major veins or arteries. They didn't say. Initial reports indicate the victim farmers felt that a satanic cult might be responsible. Some, like paranormal researcher Scott Corrales, believes the mocha vampire to be related to UFOs. But let's discuss what it could be instead. My favorite theory of the chupacabra comes out of the initial 1995 reports in Puerto Rico. It was a humor column in the San Juan Star that said a political party was killing the animals to divert attention while it registered voters for the San Juan mayoral election. It's of course not true, nor did anyone think it was, considering it was in a humor column. But it does make me giggle from a conspiracy theorist's perspective considering the sleight of hand we see from political operatives every day. But let's get into some more realistic theories. When reading that 1906 report, I found myself marveling at the single puncture wound. That, to me, doesn't sound like an animal attack. If it was a dog attack, for example, as most of the veterinarians who perform necropsies on supposed chupacabra attacks suggest, I would expect at the minimum both canines to puncture. To have just one tooth puncture suggests to me that the dog's head would have to be at such an angle that the single tooth would create a gash instead of a true puncture. Not only that, the vast majority of dog attacks involve multiple bites at multiple locations across the body, and quite frankly, chunks missing from the attacked animals. Even in cases where only one dog is the attacker, which is approximately half of all dog attacks on livestock, the dog will take chunks out of multiple animals. That's inconsistent with what we see here in 1906. Interestingly, because of their genetic condition, the Sholo dogs I mentioned earlier also have oligodontia, so they are missing teeth, and the teeth they do have are oddly shaped, more like a cylindrical shape than a triangular shape. If any dog was capable of making such odd wounds, it would have to be the Sholo, but I'm still skeptical. Instead, the single puncture wound at the neck makes me think of a nail or a piece of wire fence sticking out and the animal being pushed up against it, causing the puncture injury. The wound alone could not cause the death, however, as blood would be everywhere if it were fatal. Instead, a fast-acting infection would be my suggested culprit. Tetanus, for example, has a high mortality rate in animals, around 80%. Gestation is typically 10 to 14 days, but it can set in within just a few days. Tetanus bacteria are found in barns and other agricultural settings because they are commonly found in animal intestines and therefore animal poop. Tetanus is more prevalent in the warmer climate of Latin America than further north in the United States and Canada, which could explain why the chupacabra is a more Latin American phenomenon. 
but it isn't a great solution as it doesn't explain several key aspects of the 1906 incident. It doesn't explain why several animals fell victim at once. It also doesn't explain why all of the puncture wounds would be in the exact same place on each animal. That level of coordination is just unrealistic. It also doesn't explain why pigs were the victims, as horses, lambs, and humans are actually the most susceptible to tetanus. Actually, that doesn't extrapolate out well to other accounts either, because adult goats are thought to be immune to tetanus. And then finally, I feel sure that veterinarians in the 1990s doing necropsies would be able to diagnose a tetanus outbreak if rusty nails were the true cause of all of these issues. Instead, the necropsies always claim that dog bites followed by a general infection, not a lockjaw tetanus infection, are the cause. But that likewise doesn't explain why multiples would be dying on the same night, as infection across individuals would be unpredictable, even if they were attacked on the same night. When it comes to actual hematophagy, or the drinking of blood, that act is pretty much limited in mammals to the vampire bats. Now, all three species of vampire bats are found in Latin America, but vampire bats are only a few inches long. Not only are they not large enough to kill an animal, their feeding technique is specifically designed not to kill their prey. Vampiric parasitism isn't a viable lifestyle if you kill prey indiscriminately. An interesting factoid, though, is that vampire bats are the only mammals that use infrared detection, which they use to find a good source of blood on the body. The only other animals that use infrared detection like this are boas, pythons, and pit vipers. All snakes, obviously. And I don't think snakes could be responsible for this phenomenon either. A snake wouldn't be able to consistently get at the neck of the livestock. Ultimately, when you look at the anatomical specificity of some of the attacks, especially those seen in 1906, I can't help but feel that the people who witnessed the attacks were correct, that a human caused the injuries and deaths. But what humans, and why? When you think animal sacrifices, you probably will think of Santeria. Santeria is a syncretic religion that fuses Taimo-native Caribbean beliefs African, particularly Yoruba beliefs, and Catholicism. It originated in Cuba, but has expanded both across the Caribbean to places like Puerto Rico and across the, Cuba, and across the Cuban diaspora in the United States and other countries. Santeria has become notorious for its animal sacrifice. Headless chickens and other farm animals found left at cemeteries, washed up on beaches, dumped in roadside ditches, and floating down rivers. In fact, my hometown of Atlanta has a huge problem with hundreds of headless goats being found in the Chattahoochee River, a source of both personal recreation and city drinking water. Santeria has been blamed for these slain livestock, but... Santeria isn't as monstrous as it is made out to be in the media. Yes, blood sacrifices do occur, especially and almost exclusively of livestock, but in the vast majority of animal sacrifices within the religion, but the vast majority of animal sacrifices within the religion don't end up with carcasses floating in rivers. Actually, in most Santeria sacrifices, the animal would have their carotid artery cut, 
Then the blood would be put on the altar for the specific Orisha, or spirit if you will, and the meat would be cooked and eaten by the family as part of participating with the spirit in the ritual. That type of sacrifice wouldn't be all that different to a kosher or halal slaughter in Judaism or Islam. The only time a sacrificial animal would not be eaten is if it were a healing type of spell, where the animal was thought to have taken on those diseases from the person. Therefore, the animal's meat would essentially be poison. I can't find any specific rituals in Santeria or any other Afro-Caribbean syncretic religion where just the blood would be harvested from an animal and the body would be left behind for the farmer to find. That being said, in many spiritual traditions, including the Afro-Caribbean traditions, a blood offering is required for spirits, demons, etc. to manifest in this dimension. The blood is seen as the life force of this physical dimension that gives the spirit an anchor here. I suppose this is analogous to the breath life force giving us humans an anchor to the spiritual dimension. But importantly, there's a clear spiritual reason for someone of a non-Christian tradition to be harvesting blood, probably through some sort of trocar similar to that used in embalming. One issue I have with this human theory is the sheer amount of blood that some of these attacks would entail. For example, a goose may not have much blood, but a cow has over six gallons of blood in its body. If they were to truly remove all of the blood from multiple animals in one night, that's a lot of five-gallon buckets that they'd have to tote around. And my goodness, the length of time required. Plus, you'd have to have some type of vacuum system to truly drain all of the blood. I think the only logical solution is that the attacks involve some blood loss, enough to give the animal obvious signs of anemia, like white gums, and then also to cause death, but not a true, complete blood loss. That's consistent with veterinarians' reports that the cardiac systems are intact as well, because I imagine draining all of the blood without replacing it would cause obvious cardiac and other organ damage. Even embalmers don't remove all the blood before putting in embalming fluid. They put in embalming fluid while the body is draining blood, So I definitely think there is a level of sensationalism in these accounts, which is unsurprising, really, considering they're in newspapers. But I do think there is a way to explain the accounts from a human harvesting perspective. Looking at all of the evidence on the whole, I think it's safe to say that the chupacabra does not exist. The odd attacks that we see on animals as far back as 1906 and probably before are caused by other humans, who are likely draining the blood of livestock for the purposes of giving a blood offering to spirits, demons, etc. The fact that this phenomenon is centered on Puerto Rico is consistent with the use of blood offerings in Afro-Caribbean religious traditions. My assumption is that these would be practitioners who did not have access to their own livestock for offerings, so in the cover of night, drained the blood of the neighbor's animals perhaps performing the ritual in the barnyard itself, or perhaps just taking the blood for a later ritual. Some traditions, such as Palo Mayombe, have no set rituals, but rather each mentor has their own lineage of rituals. Without talking to each practitioner, it would be impossible to know definitively that such rituals exist. 
but it is consistent with the belief that spirits need blood offerings to manifest. I also assume that the multiple puncture wounds that we see in the Vampire of Mocha situation might be from a practitioner less trained in animal anatomy who maybe couldn't find a good vein, or perhaps it was someone looking to disguise it as an animal attack by providing multiple puncture wounds. The 1906 attacker seems to be much more knowledgeable about anatomy given the surgical precision of a single puncture wound in the exact same place on each animal. Putting my conspiracy hat on, I would say that the 1995 creation of the chupacabra was probably as a distraction, not from the actions of a political party, but from the actions of a religion. The people of Puerto Rico seem to have no issue with Santeria being practiced openly, but if you start attacking your neighbor's animals because you can't afford the animals that you want to sacrifice in Ayabale, well then that becomes a much bigger issue. It's also interesting that they chose the name Goat Sucker, even though most of the animals attacked were not goats. The goat of the Zodiac is obviously Capricorn, which is ruled by the planet Saturn. Saturn is considered by many to be a satanic archetype, and it is the greater malefic planet in astrology. And then we also have the Baphomet image created by Eliphas Levi in 1856 that prominently features a goat head. Perhaps the name Chupacabra was chosen as a wink and a nod to the dark practices performed by the attackers. Before we end this episode, I want to send you off with a fun fact. The Chupacabra is not the only goat sucker. There is a genus of birds known as nightjars, whose Latin name is Capramulgus, from the Latin capra, meaning goat, and mulgare, meaning to milk. There was a myth going back a couple thousand years that these nocturnal birds would suck the milk out of the teats of the goat. It was actually described by Pliny the Elder in Natural History with the following. Those called goat suckers, which resemble a rather large blackbird, are night thieves. They enter the shepherd's stalls and fly to the goat's udders in order to suck their milk, which injures the udder and makes it to perish. And the goats that they have milked in this way gradually go blind. In reality, these birds eat the insects that flock to the barnyard at dusk, and those blind goats are probably dealing with some sort of infestation. So these night jars are definitely unrelated to the chupacabra myth, but I did just find it fascinating that there was another goat sucker out there. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. If you have any experiences or thoughts you want to share, please reach out via Substack, Twitter, Instagram, email, or even snail mail. Until next time, in the immortal words of Euripides, question everything, learn something, answer nothing. I'll see you next week with an episode on changelings.